because they're so used to just you know adding more metcons and then they're like i can't figure out why i still feel like crap i've added more metcons like i kind of initially got better at metcons for the first four weeks now i've plateaued on those too and i'm just trying harder all the time and i feel worse i can't figure out what's going on right so they're adding more stress on that anaerobic system but the recovery of that, right? So the ability to get your body back to your, your homeostatic kind of baseline, that's all primarily driven by your aerobic system. And if that's lagging behind, it's going to take you quite a while to recover from those higher intensity sessions. Welcome to the Barbend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Dr. Nelson's resume is one of the most impressive of anyone in sports performance. He's a PhD in exercise physiology, a BA in natural science, and an MS in biomechanics. He's also an adjunct professor and a member of the American College of Sports Medicine. The first part of our chat focuses on Mike's educational background. A little later on, we get into the nitty gritty on metabolism, tweaking diets, and how your individual metabolic profile can impact performance. It's really interesting stuff for athletes and honestly people of every level. And it's something I think most strength athletes in particular aren't paying enough attention to. Do you digest fat better or do you digest carbs better? How do you tell things about your individual metabolic profile? These questions and more we get to in this conversation. I also want to take a second to say we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbin podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Dr. Mike T. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today. For those who might not be familiar with your work and your many, many qualifications, we'll go into that in a second, how did your interest in human performance come about and how long have you been in this industry? I uh, probably started like most typical males, uh, was in high school and if you had the option of having me play on your team or not play on your team, you would play with one person short. <laughs> so I was not only like the last person picked, it was the usually discussion of, Oh, do we have to have him or not? Can we just play with a one person short? Um, and then started college. Uh, I'm six, three. So I was the same height I have been since probably about ninth grade. Uh, even after my first year of college, I still weighed around 156 pounds. So very much the eel shaped rake. So I thought, well, maybe I should, look into doing some form of exercise. And I had been interested in biology and physiology before that. And so even my first year, I took anatomy and physiology. Uh, I was at St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota. I was one of the rare schools where even as an undergrad, their anatomy and physiology class actually used uh, cadavers, and they got new cadavers every quarter. So I was able to take that and was just kind of fascinated by looking at all the the different anatomy and physiology and just continue to take more anatomy physiology classes literally just for fun because I I thought it was interesting. So that's kind of how I got started. Now, finding an interest in, in an attraction to strength training 
uh, because you might not be great at other sports. That's something that's familiar to, I think, a lot of people oh, in totally. strength sports. It's maybe a bit. It's maybe a bit of a stereotype. Those who can't play ball lift weights. Um, but you know, certainly it is something where um, finding kind of a passion for strength training comes in in many different forms. So when you first started out and started developing this interest in in physiology and and, and training, um, were there any particular goals in mind or was it just to kind of get stronger, more muscular, that sort of thing? Uh, My main goal at the time was long-term to probably get close to 200 pounds. Um, And you know, like some people start, they've never lifted and they start lifting and everything just goes pretty well. And I wasn't really one of those people. I kind of made every mistake known to man. And it took me probably about like four years just to get to 185 pounds. Uh, eventually did get over 200. And I mean, the highest I've ever got up to is 245. Um, and literally most of that was just, you know, trying to lift a little bit better. You know, I did all the same mistakes everybody makes of doing the same routine every day. And I remember the guy who was at the, the weight room at college, he's like, um, do you realize you're like doing the same routine every day? And I'm like, um, yeah. He's like, that's probably not the best idea. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, it's now looking back at like, well, of course, that seems like a horrible idea. But, you know, you read the, you know, internet and which was kind of a new thing back then. And there was a kind of one day a week program. So I thought, well, if I just do that five days a week, then that would be better, right? You know, more must be better. Um, so yeah, you know, make all the same, same mistakes. And I guess my main goal was to get to, to over 200 pounds and eventually did get there. Um, you know, I had a few injuries along the way. I did all sorts of very stupid stuff, but even now looking back, I, it's hard now that you're you know, older and you look back and you see younger people and you're like, ah, oh, I'm going to give them some wisdom of what they should or should not do. And eh, it doesn't always work so well, even if they're paying clients a lot of times. So I don't know if you can ever permanently kind of dissuade people from making mistakes. I guess my newer philosophy is kind of let them make their own mistakes, but try to limit the downside. You know, make sure they don't have any catastrophic injuries, make sure they don't get you know, really injured, but I think just kind of screwing up is part of the process. And you, you talk to almost anyone in the industry and they'll just tell you a laundry list of all the mistakes that they made. But, you know, it's a good way to, to learn and get experience too. It's kind of like being a parent if you're working with someone on training or nutrition. Like you have to let them make their mistakes, but like you said, limiting that, that downside, making sure it's no mistake that's going to follow them for the rest of their life. That's the balance. Yeah, because you know, the reality is that's how most humans learn. I mean, everybody says, oh, it'd be great to learn from other people's mistakes. And in theory, that would be nice. But uh, rarely in practice do I find it happens that way. <laughs> you have, and, and I quote, this is a direct quote from, from your website. Um, so so don't, don't, get, don't get mad at me if it, if it sounds weird <laughs> when, when I say it. Uh, and I quote, more certifications and degrees than we can throw a kettlebell at. So... You are someone who exists very much at the intersection of physical preparation and performance optimization and nutritional preparation and performance optimization. Tell us a little bit about the educational 
path that you took to get to where you are in your career because you don't interact with that many people in the fitness industry these days who have 18 years of higher education under their belt, and you you do. So how does one find that educational path and end up just, you must have just loved school. Yeah, I don't know if I really love school as much as I love the process of learning and change kind of degree paths like three times along the way. So that'll, <laughs> that'll definitely extend stuff out. Um, like I said, I did my undergrad at St. Scholastica in Duluth, Minnesota. Did a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science because I wanted more of a, a background on you know communications and other things that I know if I just went into engineering only, I wouldn't have. Uh, so my goal was to do biomedical engineering. But at the time in the early 90s, there just wasn't really a, a thing per se. There was areas that did it, but trying to find a job at the end was very hard because literally I had people in the HR department tell me, well, we don't have a checkbox for biomedical engineering, so we just throw those resumes out. <laughs> I'm like, what? That seems insane. Um, so I, I did that, did my undergrad, and then went to uh, Michigan Tech University in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where it was even uh, colder and more snowy in the winter, which was fine with me. And did two years there of all engineering stuff, did another two and a half years there to do a uh, master's in mechanical engineering, uh, primarily looking more at uh, biomechanics was kind of my area of focus. Um, the advanced study of how crap breaks, I was looking at um, initially internal bone fixation for some different devices. Uh, ended up not being able to get funding, so I ended up doing uh, heat transfer. So I did a computer-generated model of a monkey in front of a microwave transmitter, which at the time they told me was for uh, safety on collision avoidance systems on cars. So this is back in the mid-90s. And later it turns out it was the military wanted to make their own ray gun to shoot at a group of people for non-lethal crowd dispersion. <laughs> So, so, so they were they were harnessing your brain power and your research to develop a non-lethal weapon, and you had no idea. Yeah, literally. Uh, my advisor sent me a note five years later, and it was this little clipping out of the side of a newspaper that says, uh, military declassifies ray gun. He goes, yeah, this is your research. And I'm like, well, you didn't tell me it was classified. I said, I thought it was weird that some three people from Brooks Air Force Base, you know, sort of showed up on the, the study that I submitted and got published. He's like, yeah, it was so classified, we didn't could tell you it was classified. I'm like, oh, that's great. Um, but and luckily enough, it got published. I was able to get done with that. Uh, I started working in the medical device industry, actually. I worked in cardiology products for about 10-plus years, uh, looking at implantable pacemakers, defibrillators, uh, everything from you know how to read EKGs, how does the device work, talking to lots of reps, nurses, physicians, you know, everything from a patient who had a device who was afraid to get near their microwave, so they're standing around the corner trying to close the door with a broomstick, you know, to uh, electrophysiologists that, you know, just put in a new device and the lead, little wires that run in the hearts, you know, tangled around the valve, like, what do they do now? So kind of a wide variety of stuff. And along that time, I was still, you know, trying to learn about physiology, and I was going to go back and do a master's in physiology, and I met a guy who worked for a different company, and he's like, well, why would you do a master's? He's like, you should just do a PhD in, in biomedical engineering, which was kind of more accepted at that time. So I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that sounds a little bit better, I guess, you know. And finally applied to the University of Minnesota. It took me about two and a half years to actually get into the program for a PhD in biomedical engineering. 
Uh, long story short, it was application process was weird and the I got kind of annoyed at the end. So I figured out who was the the guy who had to decide. And I literally just started showing up outside his office every day for three and a half weeks <laughs> uh, during a set period of time when he was supposed to be there. And towards the end of the, the third week, he finally shows up and I said, hey, can I talk to you about my application? He's like, yeah, sure, sit down. And he's like, I don't know. I've never seen it. I don't know where it went. I don't know what happened to it. And his, it was just papers like strewn like all over his desk. Like you can barely see his head like buried behind books and papers and I don't know why, I just sort of jokingly said, hey, is it in that purple folder, which is literally buried under six of books? And as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, my God, this is so bad. He's going to, like, kick me out of his office. And he picks it up and looks inside and goes, I'll be damned it is. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And so he looks at it, and he goes, oh, hmm, your master's GPA is pretty low. I'm like, it was like a 3.5. And he looks at my GRE score, and he's like, is this a typo? Because <laughs> the advice I got, which was horrible, is like, ah, don't worry so much about the GRE. You've been taking classes here for two and a half years. Just just walk in and take it. So like an idiot, that's what I did. And uh, I didn't do so well in the math section. I did really good on the, the vocab and the writing. I did horrible on the math. So my overall score wasn't too bad. But it was literally like the inverse of like everyone who applies for engineering school. Um so I got in, luckily, I was on probation literally for a year and a half. Um, so did that. I did that for five years, actually, but I couldn't get any funding. So I ended up uh, dropping out of that because I was spending all my free time learning about physiology, uh, going to physiology conferences, going to uh, conferences that trainers would go to. And I would basically sit there and annoy them about, like, research studies. I'm like, oh, hey, did you see this research study? And they look at me really funny. I'm like, well, you guys are like personal trainers and coaches, right? Don't you read research? And, you know, most of the time they're like, no, that's why we come to these things. Oh. <laughs> so I ended up uh, not wanting to do any more math. Uh, went on to the physiology department, the PhD program there for exercise physiology that fall. And had to start over basically from ground zero. The first meeting I have, uh, it's a department meeting. My advisor walks in. He's like, hey. We got two new projects, and they both involve a lot of math, which, you know, if you're an exercise phys student, you don't take a lot of advanced math. You're not really taking calc floor and differential equations and Bessel equations and variability analysis and all this stuff. And he looks around the table, and he points at me at the end, and he's like, hey, you, math boy, whatever your name is. He's like, these projects are yours now. And so that's how I got in, started involved with uh, heart rate variability and metabolic flexibility about almost over 13 years ago now. And for those who might not be super familiar, we've actually talked about heart rate variability on a separate podcast. We had Will yeah. Ahmed, the CEO of Whoop, come on, and we talked about that cool. at, at length. But metabolic flexibility and also flexible dieting is something I know you're very keen on and you work with a lot of clients on. Yeah. What is metabolic flexibility and how does it apply to, you know, maybe the average person uh, performing strength training or just trying to get stronger? Yeah, it's one of those concepts that initially at the time I had never heard of it and I had read a fair amount of physiology and stuff at the time. And, um, you know, the guy I was working with in the department explained it to me and I'm like, oh, well, that seems too simple, right? Because in fitness, everyone's like, oh, Oh, fat is the best fuel because, you know, we want to get leaner and it provides so much more ATP than carbohydrates. 
then you have people on the other side that are like, oh no, if you're doing like strength and power stuff, you need to use carbohydrates for lifting weights because it's a better performance fuel. You can get ATP, you can get energy at a much faster rate. And to me, these are kind of kind of stupid arguments because your body ideally runs on both. It ideally runs on fat and carbohydrates. It just depends upon what you're doing at that time. So metabolic flexibility is how well can your body use fat, how well can your body use carbohydrates, and then how well can it switch back and forth between those two depending upon what the task is. So if you're doing like a low-intensity uh, work or you're just kind of hanging out in a fasted state, you want the ability to use as much fat as possible. There's no need to use carbohydrates. Uh, however, if you're you know trying to get a PR and you're 500-meter time on the rower or you're doing some hideous conditioning or a you know old-school Bill Starr 5x5 on deadlifts or something like that, you actually want the ability to use carbohydrates to a high degree. Uh, so metabolic flexibility is how well can you use fat, how well can you use carbohydrates, and then how well can you switch back and forth between them depending upon what is the the task or the exercise or the thing that you're trying to do at that time. And what are some means that you use or that people can use to measure their their rate of metabolic flexibility or how well uh, their body is using these two different energy sources in a given period? Yeah, so in the lab, there's a couple different ways. I mean, the main way is looking at something called the metabolic heart, which your listeners have probably seen. If you're on a treadmill, you've got these tubes that kind of come out of your mouth and go into either a backpack device or a separate kind of computer-looking thing. Not your average treadmill, yeah. your treadmill in a, in a, in a lab. <laughs> in a lab, right. Yep, in a lab with another piece of equipment. And what that'll tell you is as you inhale and exhale air, It'll tell you the percentage of fat and carbohydrates you're using at any one moment in time. It was called indirect calorimetry. So that's one way of looking at acutely per task what energy system are you using and what percentage of that are you using more fat or using more carbohydrates. Um, in research studies, then they'll look at different things of possibly giving you an IV of a bunch of insulin or a bunch of glucose. Uh, some of them will use different types of meals. Like maybe we'll give you a meal that's super high in carbohydrates and then we'll watch to see how you switch to use carbs and how you come back. So there's different ways with kind of more fancy equipment that you can do that. If you don't have access to any of that equipment and you're looking kind of more for what is a, a field test, um, what I use on the fat end of the spectrum is fasting as kind of a proxy for uh, fat use. So if you tell me that you have a very hard time going more than two and a half hours while you're awake without having to eat something, I would say your ability to use fat is probably not the best. Um, if you can go, you know, eight, 10 hours pretty easily, probably doing pretty good. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, on the carbohydrate end of the spectrum, I've used what I call the uh, Pop-Tart test. <laughs> have two Pop-Tarts for breakfast in the morning and see how you feel, right? And the goal is not to have Pop-Tarts for breakfast every morning, but if it's 30 minutes and you're passed out asleep under your kitchen table in an insulin-induced stupor, probably can't handle carbohydrates all that well in a resting state. Um, however, if you don't really feel that bad, you're probably going to be okay, right? And you can get fancy and measure, you know, blood glucose excursions or insulin if you've got lab equipment and stuff. 
Um, but we're looking at if we give you literally 80 grams of some highly processed carbohydrate, how well can you handle that and how well do you kind of feel? So I'd say those are kind of two endpoints you can use as approximations. And what lessons can people take uh, if you're working with a client and, and you find that maybe they're they're not handling those processed carbs super well, you know what lessons can you then use or give them as far as improving their ability to tolerate different energy sources or optimizing um, their use of those energy sources? Is it changes to their diet? Is there is there are there other prescriptions you might give as far as timing their activity? How do we use those inferences in order to optimize performance on the individual? level yeah so if i find someone has a hard time using carbohydrates one of my first questions is what is kind of their general background diet what has it historically been um, i've worked with i guess more clients lately who have done a like a hardcore more ketogenic type diet so super high fat very low carbohydrate low to moderate protein and I've tried kind of switching over to a little bit more carbohydrates on their own and kind of run into issues. So if you have someone coming from that background, their body is probably pretty good at using fat, but it got used to doing that a little bit at the expense of carbohydrate usage, right? Just like exercise, you know, use it or lose it. If you're not running that uh, kind of carbohydrate glycolysis end of the spectrum really hard, it's going to downturn a little bit. Now we know from uh, studies looking at that, it's an enzyme called PDH, fiber dehydrogenase. It's kind of the gatekeeper to glycolysis, or your body's ability to use carbohydrates to a very high degree. And we do know that that does change on a very high fat diet. Actually, it gets turned down a little bit, eh, 3 to 10%, somewhere around there. Um, so if that's the case, I'm probably going to go pretty gradual on slowly increasing carbohydrates. Um, as you mentioned with timing, I may play around with adding more carbohydrates after a heavy weight training session. We know that weight training, just muscular contraction in and of itself, does help kind of temporarily sensitize you more to the effect of glucose. Uh, the main effect of there is something called uh, GLUT4 translocation. So these little receptors that pulling glucose into the muscle cell, with exercise, they tend to go more to the outside of the cell. So your body is more receptive to carbohydrates at that time. Um, even things that people forget, like just general movement, uh, what's called a non-insulin mediated uptake. That we don't really need insulin per se, that muscle contraction, just going for a walk or some simple movement, uh, can actually pull glucose directly out of the bloodstream. So if someone is having a harder time with carbohydrates, I'm going to look to see, do they do any higher intensity weight training? Do they do any type of interval work? Uh, what is their baseline amount of carbohydrates and how they feel? And then we're going to possibly look at timing. So maybe adding more carbohydrates after a heavier weight training type session. And then I'll use a proxy of like a step count. So if they say, yeah, I only get like 3,000 steps a day. I know that they're, they're non-insulin mediated uptake. So just pulling glucose out of the bloodstream just by muscle contraction is probably going to be pretty low compared to someone who says, yeah, I get about eight to 9,000 steps per day. Right? They're getting a lot more just movement, a lot more walking around, uh, probably going to be better able to uh, pull glucose out. Uh, once those are kind of in place, you can look a little bit further down at stress levels. Uh, stress kind of throws a big monkey wrench into all of it. 
So as I mentioned, I do use heart rate variability to get an idea of what their baseline stress is. Uh, I do use things like an aura ring to look at an idea of sleep or just simple when they go to bed and when they get up. Because uh, if they have sleep impairments, uh, whether that's short duration of sleep or quality of sleep is less, uh, they actually become very metabolically inflexible pretty fast. Uh, there's some studies showing that a single night of basically poor sleep, uh, you'll be more insulin resistant the next day. Uh, chronically, they did a study with um, healthy individuals, college-age people. Uh, for four days, they cut their sleep from eight hours to four and a half hours, and they became very metabolically inflexible by the end of the study. They had a poor use of fats as a fuel. They actually started putting out more fat into the bloodstream, so triglycerides, fats in the blood actually went up. And they also had a bad use or poor use of carbohydrates, but yet their carbohydrates in the blood, like glucose, actually went up also. So they kind of got whacked from both ends of the spectrum uh, just from dramatically cutting their sleep. So other things like that can have a pretty big role too. What do you think is the most underrated factor when it comes to be it metabolic flexibility or just general performance and how your body's operating and optimally using energy and utilizing its energy pathways. What's the most underrated factor uh, in your experience when it comes to that? I would say right now with the general trend would be aerobic capacity. So I've seen more clients recently, recently being over the last couple of years who are doing weight training five to six days a week, which is great. Uh, but their report is, I just can't recover from sessions. My body comp is kind of stalled. My brain feels foggy during the day. My energy level is low. I don't know what's going on. And you, know, you send them to their doc for blood work. The, all their blood work's pretty good. Uh, their stress is you know, a little bit high, but not you know, crazy high. Their sleep is okay. Not amazing, but not horrible. So on the surface, like all the stuff you look at, you're like, everything should be going pretty good, right? And a lot of these are actually trainers themselves. So I work with a lot of trainers and coaches. And what I find in a lot of the cases is that when we do some type of assessment of their aerobic capacity, uh, this can be something as simple as a Cooper run test. So if you don't have any fancy equipment, uh, take 12 minutes and see how far you can run. That'll give you an approximation of your VO2 max. Right, so VO2 max is kind of your aerobic top end, so to speak. So anaerobically, we think of kind of your one rep max. Aerobically, we can think of VO2 max as kind of a corollary to that. Um, if you're using a rower, if you have someone who's maybe mechanically, you don't really trust them for running for 12 minutes due to the, may injure themselves or other things, um, you can put them on a rower, like a Concept 2 rower. You can have them do a 2,000 meter, what's known as a 2K. And from there, there's some good equations on the Concept 2 site that have been validated that'll give you an idea of where their VO2 max is and how they compare to other populations. And what I've seen in some of these people is that their aerobic capacity is literally like bottom 20% sometimes. It's really, really low. Even these people who, and, are, who are ostensibly fit, they're going to the gym five or yeah. six days a week. Yeah, and if you look at them, you know, a lot of times their body comp is... Good. I wouldn't say amazing sometimes, or they're not at where their goal wants to be. But by all stretch of the imagination, you would look at them and go, yep, that's a, that's a pretty fit, relatively healthy, quote-unquote, looking person. Um, 
But if you think about what's going on, the main energy source during the day when you're not doing, let's say, weight training is going to come from your aerobic capacity. So you're using oxygen. And ideally, you'd want to use fat as the main fuel for that. And how well can you can take those two and convert it into ATP or energy? And if that's going to be low, right, that system is going to be more taxed just by day-to-day living. Right? So the analogy I use is if you want to do the NFL combine test and you want to see how many reps on the bench press you can get with 225, let's say you've got athlete A that can bench press 400 pounds for a single rep. You've got athlete B who can bench press 250 for a single rep. Wow. I would much rather train athlete A who can do 400 for a single rep, right? They have a much, much higher threshold of where they can go, right? So their base strength is much higher, even though it may not be specifically tuned for that test yet. It's probably relatively easy to get them to do a pretty high number. Right. So if your VO2 max is higher, now again, you don't need to get crazy. We're not having you do ultra marathons or anything like that, or you know, trying to break a two-hour marathon or some crazy stuff like that. Much just better, your day-to-day taxing of that system is going to be a lot less. So your baseline stress is going to be better. Uh, a lot of these uh, clients, their resting heart rate is relatively high. Now I'd say compared to population, it's pretty good. But seated first thing in the morning, you know, they're in the high 50s to low 60s, which by general population standard is not really that bad. But by athletic standards or comparing them to other athletes I've worked with, it's definitely on the higher side. <clears throat> so I think getting their aerobic capacity built up, uh, especially trying to use more fat to fuel that up to a point, I think is going to be a benefit. So a lot more fasted cardio which i know is a has its own little baggage that comes with it uh lower to moderate intensity work especially for the first six to eight weeks to get that base built up so you're not going to throw these people into a super high intensity boot camp or you know crazy crossfit metcon to to get them building up that capacity you're going to kind of ramp them up gradually uh, yeah, so a lot more gradual. <clears throat> Ideally, I would have it be fasted because I want a low level of insulin. I want a more metabolic stimulus to push their body to use fat as a fuel. I'm going to cap uh, the intensity level by a couple of ways. One, if they don't have a heart rate monitor, just breathe through your nose. That'll automatically cap you. Even if you're really, really good at it, you're probably going to stay more on the aerobic side by doing that. If they have a heart rate monitor, you can start them with the <clears throat> Phil Moffatone equation, which is 180 minus their age. So not the Carbonian, which is 220 minus age, but 180 minus their age. So if they're 40, their max heart rate during some of this aerobic base building would only be 140 beats per minute, uh, which is really not that high. Um, so I would do that. And then the other part that is, is really hard for a lot of clients is you mentioned kind of Metcons. And Metcons, to me, on a bioenergetic scale, are kind of their own little animal. They are not going to be intense enough that you can get an actual VO2 max, right? So if you said, I want to get maximal aerobic adaptations, I actually would not have people do Metcons. To me, that's more of an anaerobic adaptation. 
So if we look at what are like the things you can get a max VO2, so we can plateau how well your body can use oxygen uh, via that system, <clears throat> you're going to be left with uh, biking, running, versa climber, cross-country skiing, and rowing. Maybe if you're an elite swimmer, maybe, but most people are an elite swimmer. Um, so some, you know, one of those five modalities, and lifting weights faster is not one of them which really makes a lot of people sad because <laughs> they're so used to just, you know, adding more Metcons. And then they're like, I can't figure out why I still feel like crap. I've added more Metcons. Like I kind of initially got better at Metcons for the first four weeks. Now I've plateaued on those too. And I'm just trying harder all the time and I feel worse. I can't figure out what's going on. Right. So they're adding more stress on that anaerobic system, but the recovery of that, right? So the ability to get your body back to your, your homeostatic kind of baseline, that's all primarily driven by your aerobic system. And if that's lagging behind, it's going to take you quite a while to recover from those higher intensity sessions. It's interesting. And that's something that certainly if you were to sit down with a lot of CrossFit athletes or high intensity athletes and give them this news, it, it would it would be something where uh, you'd expect some disappointment and maybe terror on their face. Wait, I have to slow down. I have to dial back the intensity. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, I've lost clients because of that, you know, so I've worked with, you know, moderate level CrossFit competitors, not, not super elite per se. And the, man, like the general story goes, Hey, you know, I want to get to this level. Um, and I look at, okay, where's your strength? You know, a couple of them, I'm just like, well, you're just not strong enough, right? It's going to be a two to five year process to get your strength up. And then they usually don't hire me anyway. Um, but when their strength is pretty good, I'm like, oh yeah, your strength's in the ballpark. Uh, one, one guy in particular, his resting heart rate was 61. And I'm like, okay, uh, strong dude, uh, was doing pretty good. But anytime the Metcon got longer, he just got killed by everybody else. If it was really short and very uh, power-driven, he did pretty darn good. Um, but even another buddy he competed against was almost the same size, same body type. And I said, well, it's probably aerobic base. So we had him do some of the aerobic tests. And he was good, but he was not amazing. you know. And he wants to compete against you know people who are at a very high level. And like most of the athletes I know you would be competing against, their resting heart rate is in like the low 40s seated in the morning. You know, their VO2 max is way higher than yours, right? They have the ability to recover in very short periods of time between very hard events and even probably do okay on some of the more aerobic events, right? So people forget even at the CrossFit Games, like uh, two years ago now, they did a marathon row. I mean, that's incredibly aerobic. Also, just beyond frigging brutal. Um, but that's highly aerobic. Um, so anyway, so usually I tell them, hey, here's what's going to happen. You know, it's going to be six to eight weeks of just old school, low intensity, aerobic-based building. You're probably only going to do one Metcon a week. Yeah, we'll keep your strength up. Um, but what's going to happen is probably people in your gym who you do Metcons against, they are probably going to beat you. And they're probably going to beat you pretty bad for about six to eight months. And it's like, is your ego going to be able to handle that? Because we are not going to be training that system, right? You can't really ride two horses with one ass. And, but trust me, it, you know, once we get this built up, 
We'll get your MedCon times back. It'll take about four to six weeks, and you'll do much better than you did before. And your frequency of being able to repeat those events will be much better. Um, and I've had clients fire me halfway through because they just their ego couldn't take people at their gym. A lot of times they were the person running the gym, started beating them on MedCons. I'm like, yep, it's going to happen <laughs> because... You don't have all day to train. You got to run a gym. You have a life, and a lot of them have family and kids and everything else. Um, but even look at like you know high level like CrossFit. Like look at Matt Fraser. You know he was doing pretty good, finishing top ten in the CrossFit Games. But he said, "I I want to win." So he worked with Chris Henshaw. I think he skipped the games the next year because Chris basically told him that, "Hey, you're going to have to probably sit out one year and work on these things." And when he came back, he's just been dominating everyone. He actually he didn't he he didn't skip out. He got second his first year at the games, second his second okay. year at the games, and now he's won four years in a row as of as of yeah. this recording. So yeah, okay. So I couldn't remember if he skipped a year or if he he basically spent much of the one year working on it though. But yeah, yeah. Chris Henshaw is someone who's worked with a lot of top level top level games athletes to take them from just being pretty good lifters and like pretty good and, and really good at Metcons to also being able to handle the endurance pieces. And that's why we see these top athletes, I think like Fraser, Tia, Claire, Toomey, they're the, among the stronger athletes. They're dominating on the Metcons, but they're also winning the distance events. And in the CrossFit yeah. games, like six or seven years ago, the athletes who generally finished on the podium were not the athletes who were win- who were winning like the really, really long, more quote unquote traditional endurance based pieces. But now they are. Right. So I think that speaks yeah. to the credibility of building that aerobic capacity just to recover from everything. Yeah, and and to me, it's fascinating that. I would have never predicted that they could have gotten that high in aerobic capacity and still maintain strength and speed and power. Right now, again, are they the strongest powerlifters and Olympic weightlifters? No, but considering what they do, I am pretty shocked that they're able to get to the levels that they did. Um, but yeah, I agree that a lot of that was missing piece was aerobic development. You know, in both cases, they're already pretty strong, pretty good speed and power. But the longer things went and the longer, you know, exercises kind of went on, you would see them kind of drop off. And again, it's not like they did really bad. I mean, they beat most everybody else. But, you know, to be the best of the best, that was the missing component for them. We've talked a lot about, you, we gave the example of CrossFitters and, and how you might work the CrossFitter to, <laughs> I, I hate to use the term, but break them down to build them back up in, in a yeah. way, at least ego-wise. Um, sure. What are some of the lessons, if you are if you have a client who's maybe a powerlifter or an Olympic weightlifter, where endurance is not so much the priority, at least endurance and performing their activity of choice isn't the priority. Right. What are some of the main tools that you're going to use in working with them and in starting off an engagement with them in order to improve their performance? Yeah, so a lot of times it's very similar, but the scale is entirely different, right? So one of the questions I would ask them is if it's a power lifter, and I've worked with a fair amount of power lifters, I don't work with a lot of Olympic weight lifters, um, like what is your main issue, right? Cause nobody comes to me and goes, yeah, everything is great coach. I just want to get better, <laughs> but like never happens. It'd be great if it did, but it just doesn't. Um, so a lot of times it's most people I deal with, it's their recovery. 
whether it's a mechanics issue with a shoulder or they're just burnt out or they can only handle training for four weeks and then just collapse or so I do literally the same same thing right what's your resting heart rate what's your HRV what's your aerobic capacity what's obviously your max list because that's the thing that counts the most and then you try to figure out what's the weak link right so you're like if you can only handle training super heavy three days a week and your max strength is pretty good already, but it needs to get a little bit better. And I look at your aerobic capacity, and it's absolute dog crap, unless you're peaking for a meet. I'm like, hmm, maybe we should work on that and get it up a little bit. Maybe you only need to go from the bottom 10% to 30%, right? We're not asking you to run ultra marathons or anything like that. But every time that we've done that, their ability to recover from their anaerobic training goes up, right? So now you're able to train not three days a week, but four days a week, maybe even five days a week, right? So if I can almost double the amount of reps you can take and keep that quality high and keep the work output high, you're obviously going to get better a lot faster, right? Because you're getting in more quality practice you're getting in more tension, you're getting in more of everything else, and you have the ability to recover from it. And what I've seen with a fair amount of lifters, a lot of times that's actually the rate limiter. Because if you, if you think about it, people who are really good at lifting heavy weights are probably the same people who hate any type of aerobic training. But you can even make the argument, like you go to Westside and you talk to Louie, man, they do a ton of GPP. They do a ton of volume because they just found that their lifters seem to get better doing it, right? So I think even with powerlifting now, especially with weight class athletes where body comp is a big issue, you're not just dealing with super heavyweight athletes. Now you've got another reason that uh, some type of aerobic training can be beneficial. The caveat though is I'll, as best I can, split them out on entirely different days because uh, I don't want any type of interference effect. Uh, with most people who are brand new to lifting, you don't really have to worry about any interference effect. Um, but even someone who's uh, doing CrossFit, uh, their aerobic training would usually be ideally in the morning, primarily fasted if it's low to moderate intensity, their weight training stuff would be primarily fed higher carbohydrates, usually in the afternoon or on its own separate day, right? So the, the higher the level the athlete is, the more I get very hyper-specific with, okay, this training session, what is the number one thing we're trying to focus on? Right? Maybe it's only speed and power. Maybe it's just low reps. Um, so I think the more elite the athlete gets, the more you have to be very specific with the adaptations that you want because you only have a limited amount of recovery ability. And because they're at a very high level, it's going to take a much higher amount of stimulus to get them you know, to that next level also. Well, Dr. Nelson, these have been fantastic lessons, not only um, for high level, the highest level athletes, but I think for folks at home when it comes to starting to identify issues they have with performance. And, you know, there are a lot of strength athletes walking around who might perform at a relatively high level compared to the general population. But if they feel like crap, well, there's something going on there. And I think a lot of folks listening to this will certainly be able to relate to that. So I really loved those examples and that kind of those actionable steps that you outlined. Where can folks find out more about what you're doing, get in contact, and just generally stay up to date uh, with the work you do with clients and also just the content you put out online? 
Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I'd say the same concepts apply to someone who's, you know, a starting or even beginner or intermediate athlete. It's like, okay, you have a session Monday, you're training at 4 p.m. Okay, you should be able to tell me what is the number one goal of that session, right? And if you can't, it's just like, I don't know, this sounds cool. You probably want to rethink your training program a little bit. And that doesn't mean you have to only do one thing. You can use mixed modes, but you should still have a main goal for it. Uh, so the best place to find me would be the website, which is just MikeTNelson.com. Um, I also have a certification that's on recovery. So looking at primarily nutrition, uh, different things such as also sleep, a little bit of exercise, and that's using the concept of metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting. So that's at flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. So those would be the two best places. Uh, there'll be little places you can get on the newsletter there also. Uh, most of the content I have, probably like 90 plus percent of it actually goes out through the newsletter. The newsletter is free. So either one of those two places, MikeTNelson.com or FlexDiet.com, they'll be able to get on the newsletter and get all the info. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We do appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. 